from Vintage City Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. It's the Vintage Podcast. Good morning, everybody. Um, um, it's great to be with you this morning. Uh, this weekend, so you know the context of where this message has come out of, and um, is uh, my wife, uh, you know, most of you know, we're the, we're the proud parents of three little boys, four, two, and one, and uh, my wife was away this weekend uh, with the youngest, so I was home alone with the four-year-old and the two-year-old, um, and it's kind of funny how your perspective of that time differs, right? For me, we call that daddy son time. For my four-year-old, he calls it cereal time. Uh, because he knows that when mom's away and dad's in charge of the cooking, uh, we eat a lot of cereal. And I prepare some of it over milk, some over yogurt, so it's good, we get variety. Um, But some time, and then this weekend also, um, was you ever like put a discipline in place as a parent and then regret it? So like where you like ban watching videos, you're like, hey, no videos this weekend. And then you get halfway through the weekend and you're like, why did they take away my videos? You know, you, you long for that 30 minutes where they watch Octonauts so you can be alone. So um, it's been a busy weekend, but I'm, I'm really grateful for the opportunity to share with you this morning and share with you um, a, a compelling story of Jesus. And yet if I was to introduce and if I was to say, hey guys, I have a six hour movie for you to watch, but only five people ever got to the end of the movie, how would you feel about me plugging that movie in and you saying, sure, I, I want to join in, I want to watch that movie, right? And so this morning, we're actually going to go to the cross of Jesus. We're going to read that story in Mark 15. And I just want to lay out some truths because I have been feeling this internally myself. I, I, I truly mean this when I say, like, I didn't want to teach this. And I get the fact that in the scene of Jesus, the reality is, is that as he died on the cross, that only a a small group of women stayed and watched. Everyone else ran away. And I could read that, or I could tell you that, and I could judge that reality, but you know what? I get that feeling. I know what it's like to come to this story and with everything in me say, I just, I don't want to linger here. And so as we go through this story, together, I want you just to be aware of the fact that I don't want you to judge the reaction in yourself that says, man, I want to get out of here. I want to check out. I want to like depart emotionally, mentally, whatever, maybe even physically, right? But the point is, I want us to just say that back then there were five people or so who who stayed for the whole thing. And it's not going to take six hours. But I understand the challenge we faced this morning because I felt it too. I feel it too this longing that, man, I wish I could speak. I, I wish I was speaking about something else, but, but this is the story where we're in. And so I want to frame this story first by asking the question that brought me to this place was this, what does it take to live a life that is worth remembering? What does it take to live a life that is worth remembering? See, if I was to put some names, some faces in front of you, some famous people, Abraham Lincoln or Steve Jobs or uh, Mother Teresa or Rosa Parks, we would acknowledge that they have lives that are worth remembering. 
And yet if we, the, the reality is about lives that are remembered is that if we were to sit down and we were to talk about those folks, the reality is, is that probably just two to three sentences, just two to three thoughts would ever actually have been passed down to us. And see, if I was to make it more personal and say, hey, tell me about your great-grandfather, that the reality is that no matter what kind of life he lived, no matter whether he was a good man or a bad man, no matter whether he founded a company, whether he made a million dollars or lost a million dollars, the reality is, is that no matter what kind of life he chose to live, that here in the third generation, probably you would struggle to tell me more than two or at most three sentences about that man. And so the reality is, is that it doesn't really matter whether we live good lives or bad lives. Well, the way we have to frame it in answering that question is that you and I each have a pen in our hands and we get to decide what those two to three sentences really are going to be. See, let me drink some water first before second service it gets. See, there's a guy, um, a a writer, his name's Don Miller, and he begins one of his books or one of his passages, and he says this. He says, none of us would pay $15, would invest $15 of our money to go and watch the movie about a middle-class man who driving home from work one day on College Avenue sees a car lot and sees a car there for $29,000 and decides in that moment that his purpose is rooted around being able to buy that car. And so he spends, works hard, spends the next five years of his life saving all he can and getting to this place where he can walk in the parking lot or the car lot and said, that baby's mine. None of us would pay $15 to watch a story like that. And yet the reality is, is that it's so easy for us to get caught in the trap of investing our talents and our time and our resources into creating stories like that. That we might look back on our lives and what what a tragedy it would be if the only thing my great-grandchild knew about me was the car that I drove or the house that I owned or the boat that I longed for. And so this story of Jesus is about a life worth remembering. And Jesus wasn't insecure about whether his life would be remembered or not. He knew they would remember it. His only statement was about how they would remember it. And his how teaches us a lesson about the central importance of his life. You see, it could have all been so different, right? Uh, forget America's got talent. Okay, Britain's got talent came first, and then we ran out of talent, so we came over here, and America's got talent started. Okay, and I'm, I doubt it has another season left in it, but um, no offense. Um, no, America has a lot more talent, okay? So there's more, more seasons. Imagine it wasn't America's got talent, but it was Heaven's got talent. Okay, and there's only one contestant, Jesus. He walks on stage, he grabs the microphone, and Simon Cowell is sat there with his buttons undone, his chest hair showing, okay, that's what British guys do. Okay? I'm an American guy now, so I don't have that same challenge. And Jesus takes this water and turns it into wine. And Simon Cowell would have started sweating. He's always sweating, but he would have been sweating from excitement. He would have jumped up, given Jesus his business card, and said, Jesus, we're going to go far with this. 
Jesus, I see books. I see screenplays. I see uh, you're going to get so many likes on Instagram for this, right? Jesus turns water into wine, and yet he did not choose to be remembered for that. Jesus didn't, be cho- didn't choose to be remembered for the caskets of wine that he filled, but he chose to be remembered for the day where he emptied himself, where he gave everything, that he chose in the bread and the cup not to be remembered for what he attained in life, but rather for what he gave. And guys, that is the only way that you and I live lives that are worth remembering. Because the reality is, your neighbors aren't impressed by your car, they're just jealous of it. Your neighbors aren't impressed by your boat, they're just wondering how you got the credit to get it in the first place. It's not, I don't really care if you have a car, but I I truly don't care. It's not about that. But what I'm saying is, that is not the stuff that gets remembered. See, there have been, in, in anthropologists would say that in the course of human history, there's been 100 billion people living on planet Earth. And my friend Pete paints this picture for us of imagine you have this huge bucket of water with 100 billion drops in it. And here comes your drop. And it slowly moves down towards the bucket. And eventually it hits the water and creates a ripple effect out. And you and I get to decide what that ripple effect is. And it's not about attaining to this remembrance. It's about realizing that the only things that stand the test of time are when we give, not when we attain. And so as we step into Mark chapter 15, again, I just want to reiterate the fact that, wow, we want to run away from this story. Jesus' closest friends ran away from this story. And I just want to encourage you as best you can, because I'm going to try and stay there watching this story. But we all need to stay there and watch that story. And if I depart, hey, you can put your hand up and say, David, you left the story. So we're trying to linger there. But here's the thing as we enter this story is I want to encourage us to just create a breath, just create some margin before we enter the story. Imagine if you opened a storybook and there was no margin around the words. See, the margin is empty space, right? It's meaningless space. And yet what the margin does is create focus into what is actually going on in the story. If you opened a book and it was just words from side to side, it'd be hard to read, right? So I want you to just take a deep breath and just pause and just create some white space. Just create some margin to enter this story and be aware of the frame. So let's dive into Mark chapter 15. It says this, it says, the soldiers took Jesus into the courtyard of the governor's headquarters called the Praetorium and called out the entire regiment. They dressed him in a purple robe and they wove thorn branches into a crown and put it on his head. Then they saluted him and taunted, Hail, King of the Jews. They struck him on the head with a reed stick. They spit on him and dropped to their knees in mock worship. When they were finally tired of mocking him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him again. Then they led him away to be crucified. A passerby named Simon, who was from Cyrene, was coming in from the countryside just then. 
and the soldiers forced him to carry Jesus' cross. Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus. They brought Jesus to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. They offered him wine drugged with myrrh, but he refused it. Then the soldiers nailed him to the cross. They divided his clothes and threw dice to decide who would get each piece. It was nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. A sign announced the charge against him. It read, the king of the Jews. Two revolutionaries were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. The people passing by shouted abuse, shaking their heads in mockery. Ha, look at you now, they yelled at him. You said you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well then, save yourself and come down from the cross. The leading priests and teachers of religious law also mocked Jesus. He saved others, they scoffed, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down from the cross so we can see it and believe him. Even the men who were crucified with Jesus ridiculed him. At noon, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. Then at three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Some of the bystanders misunderstood and thought he was calling for the prophet Elijah. One of them ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, holding it up to him on a reed stick so he could drink. Wait, he said, let's see whether Elijah comes to take him down. Then Jesus uttered another loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So this is a story that I think it's fair to say we want to run away from. Jesus begins his day brought before the entire regiment of the army. There were about 600 people in that garrison. And all of them come out to surround this man, Jesus. I've got to check that's not my kid, so. <laughs> um, no. I can't do anything if it is, so. Uh, and so Jesus begins his day surrounded by 600 people and they surround him because they want to mock him and they want to beat him. And yet at the moment when he's giving his life for everyone in this room and everyone who's ever lived, there is nobody surrounding him. Just a small handful of women, his own mother who stayed to watch her son die. So it is normal, it is expected, it is common for us to press pause at any point in this story. And so I can't force you to watch. I'm not, I'm not uh, judging if you don't want to watch, but I want you just to pause and take a deep breath and linger as long as you can. Because what we learn about in this story of Mark 15 is what it looks like to live a life worth remembering. And here is this man, Jesus, and his entire life is summed up by this theme of giving himself, of sacrifice. You see, right in Scripture, this sacrifice didn't just come out of nowhere. The theme of sacrifice had been woven into the story of God from the very beginning. And so we see in Genesis the theme of sacrifice woven in. And then we see into Exodus and into Leviticus this theme of sacrifice. And here's the thing about the giving is that there's a, a portion of the giving, it's called the giving of the first fruits. And here's what you weren't supposed to do. So the giving of the first fruits is where you give your first fruits to God. 
And so imagine for a moment that I own this entire field. Okay, this, this room right here is one field and this stage is 10% of it. What I wasn't supposed to do, what, this, what the giving doesn't teach is that I'm to wait until the entire room is filled with crops and then I take 10% and give that. So I have 100%, I carve out 10% and I give that to God. That isn't what the first fruits was about. The first fruits was about when the first 10% grows and nothing else is grown. When the first 10% grows, you take that down and give it all to God. So at the end of the season, you would say, we gave 10% to God. But in the moment of giving, you were giving everything you had. You weren't waiting until your bank account was filled up to then say, I can carve out this portion for God. That in the moment of giving, all of that future was just a promise, was on faith. In the moment of giving, you were giving everything you had. And so in the story of the cross, in the story of Mark 15, it is a picture for us. Romans says that everything that was written about before him was written for our learning. It was a picture for us of the sacrifice of Jesus. And so in Mark 15, he wasn't giving a portion of himself. He was giving everything of himself. There's another reality that is woven into Scripture that is important that for the, to remember at the cross. And it's this, that in the book of Leviticus, Leviticus is the third book in the Bible. It, the word Leviticus means, and God called. So in Genesis, you have God's call to sinners. Adam, where are you? In Exodus, you have God's call to service. Moses, take off your shoes. And in Leviticus, from God's call to sinners to God's call to service, we have God's call to sacrifice. God's call to give. And so every single one of us as a follower of Jesus, we are first called to repent from our sin. And then we are called like Moses into service. And then like stepping into this book of Leviticus, we are called to sacrifice, to give, to give everything. But in Leviticus chapter 6, it describes the scene of the altar. Leviticus 6 verse 13 says that the fire on the altar must never go out. And it's a picture for us of this all-consuming reality that the people of Israel who are bringing their sacrifices, no matter what they bring, the fire keeps consuming. It keeps burning. It keeps going. And yet in Mark 15, when Jesus gave his life on the altar, on the cross, the fire stopped. Proverbs says the fire never says enough. But when Jesus gave his life on the cross, he said enough. He said there's no more sacrifices needed because he gave his everything. And so maybe for you today, you need to hear the word that enough is enough. Maybe it's about you waking up and having that internal critic, that internal voice that is shaming you, that is, um, that is despising you. And the cross just says, enough. Maybe it's this inner search for, am I lovable? Am I meaningful? Do I matter in the world? And the cross says, enough. 
And above all, the cross is about Jesus, the Son of God, looking into your eyes, looking into my eyes, and saying, you, child of God, you are enough. We don't have to come to him and prove that we're lovable because we're already loved. We don't have to come into this story, into this relationship with Jesus and wonder what can we bring, what can we do that's going to make him think more of us. Because the story of Mark 15 is that you are already enough and he has given everything for you. So as we dive back into the story, there are just a couple of things that are worth mentioning that are just worth pausing on. And again, I probably like you, I want to run like a million miles away from this stuff. It's not, it's not easy. It's so much easier to, at times at least, to read stuff like Philippians, you know, where it's like, I can do all things through him. I like those verses. But sometimes we have to have courage just to go to the scene of his death and just pause there long enough to absorb what it means about you and I. To stay there long enough to hear his cry. To stay there long enough to see his giving. And to apply that in our own lives to say that I am enough. That I matter. That Jesus gave his everything for me. But in that story in verse 20, it's easy, I think, to read these verses, verses 16 to 20, in like 30 or 45 seconds. The reality is it took a lot longer than that for Jesus to live them. And so it says in verse 20, it says that when they were finally tired of mocking him, they stopped. See, they didn't stop mocking him because Jesus was tired. They stopped mocking him because they were tired. And the entire garrison of soldiers who surrounded him were staying there long enough to seek to make him feel small, to seek to make him feel shameful, and all of those things, and yet he didn't take on that identity. So they stopped mocking him, and then he started walking, and it says this, in Mark 15, you get Jesus, he's so beaten up, he's so bruised, he's so broken. He's lost so much blood, he's so tired that as he walks up this hill to the scene, it's called Golgotha, it means the place of the cross. And as he walks up this road carrying his cross, he's too weak to carry it, and so they pull this man out from the crowd. His name is Simon of Cyrene. And it tells us a detail about Simon that at first seems like a total waste of time. It tells us that Simon is the father of Alexander and Rufus. It tells us that he's a dad, and he has two little boys. And maybe this is, uh, you know, historians may challenge this. We, we don't know for sure, but the reality is, is Mark, the Gospel of Mark was written in about AD 50 to AD 60, right? It was written about 20 years after Jesus died. And at the same time, the Apostle Paul was writing his letter to the Romans in about AD 56, so it overlapped. And at the end of Romans, in, in chapter 16, he begins to call out individuals in the church to thank them, to honor them, to say hi to them. And in the midst of all of his thank yous, he calls out this man, Rufus. And he says, say hi to Rufus and to his mother, who was in her way a mother to me. 
And so I think the reality we get from this picture is we have this man, Simon, who's pulled out from the crowd. And he carries the cross of Jesus up the hill. And then as they get to the top of the hill, Jesus says to Simon, Simon, it's time to give it back because that's my cross, not yours. And Simon is so impacted by walking alongside Jesus for that journey that when he gets home to his little boys, Alexander and Rufus, that he puts them on his lap and he says, boys, I need to tell you about a man who gave everything for me. I need to tell you about a man who gave everything for you. And 20 years later, we find this man, Rufus, in this church in Rome with Paul thanking him and thanking his mother who had come alongside him too. Last week, uh, Greg jumped into again into Corinthians and talked about that passage that, again, it's why I don't go verse by verse because I want to skip verses. So, uh, but he did such an unbelievable job, if you were here, of calling out a whole host of things, but in the midst of that, calling out what it means to be a leader of your family. And I think in this man, Simon of Cyrene, we get a picture for us of what the cross can do to us as men and as women too, but in this case as the man. And I would encourage you to stay long enough in this story that you would go home and to the kids that you love or the people that you love, that you would draw them close and say, I want to tell you about a man who gave everything for me. We're going to pause. We're going to take bread and cup. We're going to remember Jesus in the way that he has to be remembered, not in his miracles, not even in his wholeness, but even in his brokenness. That our job as we take the bread and the cup is not to put the pieces of bread back together, to make it an acceptable scene, but it's to receive the brokenness and to receive the blood that was poured out and to just pause for a moment and think of a man who gave everything for you and I. We're going to pause and take bread and cup. Thanks. Thanks for listening. For more great content, please visit us on the web at VintageCityChurch.com.